Book Two, Chapter Eight of Their Mutual Child. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Their Mutual Child by P. G. Woodhouse. Book Two, Chapter Eight. Steve, to the rescue. It is an unfortunate fact that, when a powder magazine explodes, the damage is not confined to the person who struck the match, but extends to the innocent bystanders. In the present case it was Steve Dingle who sustained the worst injuries. Of the others who might have been affected, Mrs. Laura Delane Porter was bomb-proof. No explosion in her neighbourhood could shake her. She received the news of Kirk's outbreak with composure. Privately, in her eugenic heart, she considered his presence superfluous, now that William Bannister was safely launched upon his career. In the drama of which she was the self-appointed stage director, Kirk was a mere super, supporting the infant star. Her great mind, occupied almost entirely with the past and the future, took little account of the present. So long as Kirk did not interfere with her management of Bill, he was at liberty, so far as she was concerned, to come and go as he pleased. Steve could not imitate her admirable detachment. He was a poor philosopher, and all that his mind could grasp was that Kirk was in trouble, and that Ruth had apparently gone mad. The affair did not come to his ears immediately. He visited the studio at frequent intervals and found Kirk there, working hard and showing no signs of having passed through a crisis which had wrecked his life. He was quiet, it is true, but then he was apt to be quiet nowadays. Probably, if it had not been for kegs, he would have been kept in ignorance of what had happened for a time. Walking one evening up Broadway, he met kegs, taking the air, and observing the nightlife of New York, like himself. Kegs greeted Steve with enthusiasm. He liked Steve, and it was just possible that Steve might not have heard of the great upheaval. He suggested a drink at a neighbouring saloon. "'We've not seen you at our house lately, Mr. Dingle,' he remarked having pecked at his glass of beer like an old wise bird. He looked at Steve with a bright eye, somewhat puffy at the lids, but full of life. No, said Steve, that's right. Guess I must have been busy. Keggs uttered a senile chuckle, and drank more beer. They're rummins, he went on. I've been in some queer places, but this beats them all. What do you mean? inquired Steve as a second chuckle escaped his companion. "'Why, it's come to an ed, things as, Mr. Dingle. That's what I mean. You won't have forgotten all about the pampering of that child, what I told you of quite recent. Well, it's been and come to an ed.' "'Yes, continue, Colonel. This listens good.' "'You ain't heard?' "'Not a word.' Keg smiled a happy smile, and sipped his beer. It did the old man good finding an entirely new audience like this. Why, Mr. Winfield has packed up and left. Steve gasped. Left, he cried. Not quit. Not gone for good. For his own good, I should say. Finds himself better off away from it all, if you ask me. But ain't you really heard, Mr. Dingle? God bless my soul. I thought it was public property by now. That little bit of news. Why, Mr. Winfield hasn't been living with us for a matter of a week or more. 
for the love of Mike. I'm telling you the honest truth, Mr. Dingle. Two weeks ago, come next Saturday, Mr. Winfield meets me in the hall, looking wild and arrest. It was the same day there was that big thunderstorm, and he looks at me glassy like, and says to me, Keggs, have my bag packed and my boxes too. I'm going away for a time. I'll send the messenger for him. And out he goes into the rain, which begins to come down like cats and dogs the moment he was in the street. I start to go out after him with his raincoat, thinking he'd get wet before he could find a cab. They've been so scarce in this city. Not like London, where you simply have to raise your hand and have a dozen flocking round you. But he don't stop. He just goes walking off through the rain and all. And I gets back into the house, not wishing to be wetted myself on account of my rheumatism, which is always troublesome in the damp weather. And I says to myself, Hello, hello, hello. What's all this? See what I mean? I could tell as plain as if I'd been in the room with them that they had been having words. And since that day he ain't been near the house. And where he is now is more than I can tell you, Mr. Dingle. Why, he's at the studio. Well, the studio, is he? I shouldn't wonder if he wasn't better off. He didn't strike me as a man what was used to the ways of society. He's happier where he is, I expect. And, having summed matters up in this philosophical manner, Keggs drained his glass and cocked an expectant eye at Steve. Steve obeyed the signal and ordered a further supply of the beer for which Mr. Keggs had a plebeian and unbutler-like fondness. His companion turned the conversation to the prospects of one of that group of inefficient middleweights whom Steve so heartily despised, between whom and another of the same degraded band, a ten-round contest had been arranged and would shortly take place. Ordinarily, this would have been a subject on which Steve would have found plenty to say, but his mind was occupied with what he had just heard, and he sat silent while the white-haired patron of sport opposite prattled on respecting current form. Steve felt stunned. It was unthinkable that this thing had really occurred. Mr. Keggs, sipping beer, discussed the coming fight. He weighed the alleged left hook of one principle against the much-advertised right swing of the other. He spoke with apprehension of a yellow streak, which certain purists claimed to have discovered in the gladiator on whose chances he proposed to invest his cash. Steve was not listening to him. A sudden thought had come to him, filling his mind to the exclusion of all else. The recollection of his talk with Kirk at the studio had come back to him. He had advised Kirk, as a solution of his difficulties, to kidnap the child and take him to, Con to Connecticut. Well, Kirk was out of the running now, but he, Steve, was still in it. He would do it himself. The idea thrilled him. It was so in keeping with his theory of the virtue of the swift and immediate punch, administered with the minimum of preliminary sparring. There was a risk attached to the scheme which appealed to him. Above all, he honestly believed that it would achieve its object, the straightening out of the tangle which Ruth and Kirk had made of their lives. When once an idea had entered Steve's head, he was tenacious of it. He had come to the decision that Ruth needed what he called a jolt to bring her to herself, much as a sleepwalker is aroused by the touch of a hand. And he clung to it. He interrupted Mr. Keggs in the middle of a speech, touching his man's alleged yellow streak. 
"'Will you be at home to-night, Colonel?' he asked. "'I certainly will, Mr. Dingle. Mind if I look in? I should be delighted. I can offer you a cigar that I think you'll appreciate, and we can continue this little chat at our leisure. Mrs. Winfield's dining out, and that there porter, thank God, has gone to Boston.' End of Chapter 9 Steve to the rescue. Read by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org.